Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Jeremy Bloom, a two-time Olympian and the only Winter Olympian to compete in the Games and then be drafted by the NFL. He's also a successful entrepreneur and philanthropist. Welcome, Jeremy. What's up, Sasha? I was trying to remember the story of how we met. And I believe it was 2001, going into the 2002 Games in Salt Lake City at, a, at an Olympic summit. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, at that point, I don't, I don't think neither you nor I knew if we were going to make the team. I mean, we, we obviously hoped that we would. And we, uh, but, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that was my first Olympic summit. I think it was yours as well. And it was a long time ago. <laughs> and I remember going in, I think you were featured on an MTV special. And I remember thinking, oh, this guy is really, really cute. And I hope I make the Olympics so I get to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking the exact same thing about you, albeit not on an um, MTV special, just being as you know, kind of the darling of, of the Olympics coming into the games as probably the most famous U.S. athlete coming into the games, or you were, you were certainly up there. Yeah, and, and definitely in 2006. In 2002, I was a little bit of an outlier. I feel like we have a very special history because we both went to Salt Lake City in 2002, both went to Torino in 2006, both had dreams of gold. We've <laughs> both been on this transitional path since then. Just to give the audience context, I wanted to bring us back to a specific moment so that people could really understand what it feels like. I was thinking like at the second Olympics, you hope to medal. What was going through your mind when you went to those games? Before, before you answer, I wanted to set a little context from your own words from your book. You write, the night that I failed to win a gold medal in the Olympics for the second time was one of the most painful nights of my life. I was heartbroken, angry, and confused. But I made a pact with myself. I would allow myself 48 hours to obsess over everything that happened, and then I was going to completely move on and not look back. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, look, my, most of my, my young life, I, I dreamed of women winning an Olympic gold medal. That was like, that was the pinnacle for, for me. And coming into Salt Lake as the number one ranked skier in the world at 19 was a lot of pressure. And it was pressure I'd never dealt with before. And, and uh, I learned a lot in that Olympics. And, and then after that Olympics, I, I went to the University of Colorado and played football for the Buffs in front of 80,000 people almost every Saturday. And, you know, we're playing Oklahoma and Florida State. It was really there where I learned how to deal with uh, the, the pressure of, you know, major competition. So my second Olympics in, in Torino was, was very, very different. Um, I approached it very differently. And um, my nerves really what weren't the equation there. Um, but the year before, I won more consecutive World Cups than anybody in history, and I was skiing really well, and, and I felt really good. And it was just uh, it was just a one little mistake. I mean, one little break in the knees and freestyle skiing is the difference between sixth and first. And, you know, that happened. It was an unfortunate stroke of luck. And as I wrote it in my book, Fueled by Failure, that you just uh, quoted, um, it was, it was a dark night. It was, it was really difficult to, to deal with for me. Cause I knew at that point that I would never win an Olympic gold medal. And, you know, I, 
you know, I won three world championships and 11 world cup gold medals and was later inducted to the hall of fame. And, you know, it was, it was a successful career and it's easier for me to have that perspective now looking back, but it was impossible to have that perspective after, after not getting that Olympic gold. But the, you know, the big learning in my life happened that night when I, when I said, yeah, I'm going to take 48 hours and I'm going to distill every single thing down. I'm going to dissect whatever, you know, happened to, um, so that I didn't win. And, and there's gotta be some learnings in this. And then after 48 hours, I'm not looking back. I'm not looking back at all. I'm moving on a thousand miles an hour. And I woke up the next day in, in Torino, Italy and flew to Indianapolis for the 2006 NFL combine and transitioned into football. And a month later was drafted by, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. And I took kind of all the, you know, that the lessons that I learned in Torino, um, onto the next phase of life. I'm very impressed that you could do that in 48 hours. I think when I missed the podium in Salt Lake City and when I missed the gold in Torino, I think it was years, <laughs> years of replaying that moment in my head, just trying to understand how a moment I'd been training my entire life for had just slipped from, like, slipped through my fingertips. Then it was, you know, it went into self-doubt. What did I do wrong? Three years ago, should I have gone to this coach? Did I train too much? Did I train not enough? I find it so impressive that you could set this framework of 48 hours and move on. Later in your book, you say, which I believe ties into this and perhaps the lessons you took away from the Olympics, that you learned earlier in your life, winning was everything for you. You attribute that to being born into a culture and media landscape that teaches you that heroes should be the people that win the most, make the most money, and have the most fame. So was it right after 2006 that you began to redefine that relationship with winning, or when did that happen for you? It actually happened in 2004. I read a book called The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer, and there was this, there was this chapter in the book called you Give Up Your Need to Win. And I read that chapter. And I'm like, this guy's out of his mind. Like, you know, how is this guy selling books? He has no idea what the purpose of life is. Cause obviously the purpose of life is to win. <laughs> but I felt like I just, I just kept coming back to that chapter. And I'm like, interesting. Like, what if I gave up, you know, my need to win and how would, how would I approach athletics differently? And, and I tried it on for size. I would do things that were just completely out of my comfort level. Like, you know, help my biggest competitors with course reports, which I would have never otherwise have done, but it liberated my ego like completely. And, and I no longer wanted to beat this person or this person or this person, or had to beat this person, or this person, or this person. My motivation moved intrinsic. So less extrinsic and more intrinsic of personal growth. And I really attribute that to, to why I had a, such a successful 2005. Um, you know, I, 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 at that point, I was just a bit unstoppable, but I didn't, it wasn't the winning that I cared about. It was like this, the, the gratification of just nailing my run. It wasn't about beating this person I didn't like, or this, it was just like the gratification of like, all right, I, you know, I, I nailed my run. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that and certainly makes life happier. Um, you certainly invest in, you divest in things like filling your trophy case and um, making every dollar that you possibly can. And you invest in things like personal growth, helping others. I certainly, you know, it's, it, it, it's an aspirational way to live, right? I mean, it's, I still want to win. I still want to make money. I still want to do all those things, but it's emphasizing them a bit less. Because there is a difference that maybe people watching the Olympics don't always tune into. It's about winning, but 
for us as athletes, it's about we're not boxers. It's not like we have an opponent in front of us we're trying to knock down. Did we go out there and live up to our own potential? And the way you talk about an extra knee bend in your second run, for me, falling in in my Olympics, it was that I didn't meet my own potential, let alone not winning. And so it becomes this twofold conversation with yourself. And I think ultimately what every athlete wants is to know that they gave it their all and they have no regrets about that performance that they gave. But I want to transition a little bit to competing in the Olympics, continuing to ski as you were playing college football. First of all, I'll let the audience know that you were the only person, I believe, ever to compete in the Winter Olympics and get drafted by the NFL. That is certainly an impressive feat. (laughs) I think what something is that most people don't know is the struggle you had between 2002 and 2006, that you were not allowed to accept any endorsement money for your skiing career while you were playing college football. Ultimately, you loved football so much that you, you chose to give up the money, but then you were broke, and then you got kicked out of kicked off your team. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that process? What was going through your mind and I guess the sense of injustice you felt? Sure. Yeah, so in 2000 well, when I was 18 years old the year before the the Salt Lake um Olympics, I was not world ranked. So I I was a complete unknown in in skiing and fast forward a year I just completed my first Olympics and ranked, finished the season ranked as the number one skier in the world. And it was the first time in, in my life that I had an opportunity to, to sign a ski endorsement or a you know goggles endorsement. The things that you would do as an Olympic skier to help pay for your coaches and your travel. It's a very expensive sport. And um, I was enrolling in my freshman year at the University of Colorado. And then the NCAA said, well, hey, if you accept that ski sponsor, you, you can't play football. And and I was a bit perplexed by that because at the same time, the NCAA allows multi-sport athletes like Drew Henson, who played quarterback at Michigan and played baseball to make $1.6 million as a signing bonus while he was still in college playing football. So I'm like, wait, I can't sign a ski endorsement contract, but guys like Ricky Williams or Drew Henson can make millions of dollars playing baseball. It just seemed very hypocritical. So I ended up um, suing the NCAA in district court in Boulder and through uh, a bunch of reasons that we we could go into a whole legal podcast uh, on a separate subject. I won't, but for a bunch of reasons that the judge sided with the NCAA. And so I had a decision. I, I could either make the, I don't know, a couple hundred thousands of dollars, which at 19 felt like millions and millions of dollars, um, and continue to ski or take the risk of, you know, playing football. And I think most, most people looked at me, you know, I'm five foot nine, 172 pounds soaking wet, right. Of like skiing's your sport football. Like you're not going to ever see the field, um, as as football, like stick to skiing. You're the number one ranked skier in the world. There's no way you're going to play for the buffs, but I just, um, yeah, I wanted the opportunity. And so it, it was a hard decision, but it wasn't that hard because I knew I would I would always regret not giving it a shot. And in my first football game, we were playing in-state rivals, Colorado State, at Broncos Stadium. 82,000 people sold out. And I was the third string punt returner, which means I wasn't going to play. 
but in the third quarter, I don't know why my head coach started yelling my name. He said, you know, so I go up to my coach. I'm like, Hey, he's like, I want you to go return this putt, this punt. We were down 13 zero. We couldn't do anything in the game. I said, yeah, sure. No problem. And I ran back to the, to the bench and I threw my helmet on and I started ru- walking onto the field. And then I looked around and I was like, Holy S H I T. Like what is going on? Like I was not expecting to play in this game. And, uh, they, you know, Colorado state punted the ball and the guys, the 10 guys in front of me gave me a great wall and I returned it, I don't know, 75 yards for a touchdown. The first time I touched the ball and I just looked around looking at the stand, just, just 80,000 people going crazy. I'm like, this is what it was. It, it made it all worth it. Like, and then that year it turned out to be just a fantastic year for me. I ended the year as a, um, first team all American, um, at the university of Colorado playing football. And so, yeah, the money didn't mean anything at that point. I think that's something that as we get older, we understand more and more. It's less and less about winning and the money, but the experiences you get along the way, those moments to connect with an audience, to challenge yourself, see what you're capable of and continue to push and play in different arenas in life, which brings me to the incredible opportunity you had during your time at the NFL to go to Wharton. And that was a a stepping stone for you to transition as an athlete to a normal person or someone in the business world. What did that mean to you? I know that unlike ice skaters or, you know, someone like myself who was homeschooled and ended up going to Columbia at 26, not having been in a classroom since I was 12, you managed, I believe, to go to high school and go to college. So what was Wharton like for you and, and how did that set you up for later success? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I got to play those two seasons at Colorado, as you mentioned before, I, in the NCAA kind of came in and, and said, uh, we're not going to let you, you know, take any money. And so I didn't get to play in my junior and senior year. And so I focused on skiing and then got drafted the Eagles in 2006. And the Wharton piece kind of came into my life um, that, that summer. The, the NFL has this just incredible program where if you're playing, you can take MBA classes at Kellogg, Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton, three of the top MBA programs in the world. And since Wharton was in my backyard in, at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was playing for the Eagles, I said, you know, not really sure what I would learn there, but what an incredible opportunity. Let's turn this stone over and see what's underneath it. And, and thank goodness I did, because I was inspired at Wharton. Um, in 2006, like I was inspired when I was 10 years old watching the Olympics for the first time. It really felt very similar um, in nature. And it was at a point in, in my life when I was really starting to think about what would be next. You know, here I was living this incredible lifestyle of getting paid to go ski across the world, which is just crazy. That Who gets paid to ski, to snow ski? Like it just is it is, it's crazy to think that. Right. And then I was getting paid to play football. Like who gets paid to play football? Like that's what you did in the backyard growing up. And, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I know how to catch a football. I know how to ski a little bit. That's not going to be attractive in the job market. Right. And so how can I add value when my athletic skills are gone to, to a business or a company or a team? And it was at Wharton, really through my professor, Peter Lenneman, who became a very good friend and advisor. And he took me under his wing. I interned after practice nearly every day 
um, with him and just learned a lot. And that's where I, I first got the itch and to, uh, to start a tech company someday. Along the lines of this transition, I think a lot of people see you as such an immense success. And yet the inner dialogue that you carry through this transition time was, what would I do when my days of competing as a pro athlete ended? Would I find another job? Would I find a place to apply my drive to succeed? And did you have any value outside your athletic identity? And I think this would probably come to a shock to most people who see you just absolutely crushing it in your time as an Olympic athlete in the NFL, and then you're at Wharton, and yet you're having these doubts. Do I have any value outside of being an athlete? How did you get over that 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 doubt that would you have any value in a world outside of sports? Well, that was my biggest fear throughout my athletic career. My biggest fear was that I, I would have little to no value post-Olympic career. Um, and then my second biggest fear was probably not winning an Olympic gold medal. But, but the first one was definitely bigger. And, you know, people need purpose in order to be happy. There's lots of longitudinal studies around happiness, and purpose is always a, a common driver. And very rarely is money one of them beyond a certain point. I, I think, you know, to be able to have food shelter uh, and water, absolutely. But beyond that, money has very little impact on overall happiness in one's life. And so, you know, yeah, I made some money in sports and those types of things. But I, I always, like, I found purpose in skiing. I found purpose in football. Like, it drove my daily behavior. It drove, like, I loved working, working out eight hours a day because I knew that it was going to make me a better skier. And that was my purpose. That was my calling. That was my life. But what happens when that's gone? How do you how do channel you, that? How do you find that again? And and that fear led me to Wharton. It led me to to invest in other things and plant other seeds that didn't grow. And ultimately led me to to the place where where I am today, where I started a tech company in 2010, shortly after um, I was done um, competing, and I started a nonprofit in 2009. And today, that's like my football and skiing. I find this very similar amount of purpose in both of those vehicles to apply, you know, my daily life to. And, and I think that's been my biggest blessing. And certainly the things that I'm most grateful for um, throughout this last journey over the last 25 years. I'm more grateful for that, finding a path of purpose, than I am for any of the gold medals that I won or any of the football games that, that I previously won. I want to help the audience understand uh, one of the stepping stones that took you between your time at Wharton and starting a tech company. I remember when I was getting ready to go to TED for the first time, you were telling me what an incredible experience you had and that you signed up for a conference called TED Med and that ended up changing your life in a number of ways. Do you want to share that story with us? Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite stories, and it's such a it was such a random thing. I didn't even know why I wanted to go to TED Med. Um, I just wanted to be inspired, and and I liked the TED conferences. And so yeah, I signed up for for TED Med, and I went there alone. And on the first night, there was a big gathering and a dinner. It was outside 
at the Del Mar Hotel in, in San Diego. And I sat down and this guy sits next to me, this blonde haired kid sits next to me. We start talking about life a little bit. He's a football fan. It turns out he likes the Philadelphia Eagles. I know a few things about the Philadelphia Eagles. And so we, were, we talked a lot about football and stuff. And, and then, you know, I transitioned the conversation. I said, you know, what his, his name was Chad. And I said, what do you do, Chad? He says, oh, I work at YouTube. And this was, mind you, this was, two, what, 2010 maybe? So these were pretty, early, you know, not early days of YouTube. Everybody knew knew what it was and those types of things. And I, but I was like, wow, that's so cool. YouTube is such a great tech company. And he said, thanks. And so, you know, we were eating and, and, and uh, you know, by dessert time, I guess somebody else asked him around the table, well, what do you do at YouTube? And just with a, an amazing amount of humility, um, he said, I started it. Um, I'm one of the one of the co-founders was Chad Hurley and, and my eyes kind of opened up. I'm like, wow, what an amazing person. Right. And, you know, obviously very bright and intelligent and incredible entrepreneur, but you know, he didn't lead off with like, Hey, I started YouTube. It, it happened subsequently in the conversation at the end of dinner. And anyway, we had built a, a nice relationship at dinner. And, and I said, why don't you, why don't we meet tomorrow morning and I'll take you through an Olympic leg circuit, um, this, a leg circuit that we would do on the freestyle tour and let's see how far you can get through it. And, and so we met in the morning and we usually do like five or six reps of this, this leg circuit. I think he made it like one and a half, which is pretty good accomplishment before proceeding to throw up and uh, call me all (laughs) kinds of names, but it was just a great way to connect with somebody, you know, beyond the dinner table or beyond work. And Chad and I became good friends and he introduced me to just the most influential people in my life that, that had helped guide and lead me to the place I am today. And coming back to a few of the excerpts that I've shared from your book, you titled your book Fueled by Failure. And I think most people really wonder why you would title your book Fueled by Failure. Were you considering other titles? I think it's (laughs) safe to say that the world considers you a success many, many times over. What was behind choosing that as a title? Thank you for that. Yeah, so my, my publisher was Entrepreneur the same folks behind like entrepreneur magazine and they do a bunch of books per year. And they said, Hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? I said, yeah, I really want to write a book about failure. And they're like, uh, yeah. What about another topic like success? And I was like, yeah, but I kind of feel like you're missing a main ingredient in success and kind of failure. And so I was very persuasive. They didn't want it to be titled they didn't want failure in, in the title and they were pretty passionate about that. But I can be persuasive when I'm, uh, when I'm really passionate about something. Look, I, I think there's, everybody fails, right? And, you know, Walt Disney was fired from his first job for a, quote, lack of imagination. And Michael Jordan was cut twice in high school as a basketball player. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple before he started Pixar and went back to Apple. But every single human being, we're all born into this world where literally failure is our mechanism to learn. Think about walking. How many times as infants do we try to take our first step and we fall over? Imagine if infants had the same adult egos that we all have today. They would literally take three steps, fail three consecutive times and say, oh, walking's not for me. And we would never learn how to walk. Or think about the language. We mutter our way through whatever language we're learning as as infants until we find a place of communication. And so I feel like this idea of 
you know, getting away from personalizing failure of like, oh, that event defines me and therefore I will never chase my dreams again because I am a failure is the complete opposite way that, that we should look at it. We should actually, if we're not failing at all, we're not taking big enough risks and we're not trying to take big leaps, you know, in, in our in our lives. And I always find those to be the most amazing experiences. And so the book was really a foundation of saying, all right, you hear a lot in life that, you know, failure can, can help you, but, but how and why? And I wanted to go deep into that topic. And it really, it is a, is a framework for how folks can think differently about, quote, setbacks or failures in, in our lives and how we can use those moments to recalibrate our compass towards success, whatever success is that we define. I want to go back into that answer, and you said something which struck me, which was not to define yourself by your failures. On the flip side of that, how do you define yourself? Where do you get your sense of identity? Because I, I have found that it's been a challenge to build a new identity, leaving behind that ice skater. I will always be an Olympian. I will always have been an Olympic skater. Now it's who am I aside from that and apart from that. And it's it's been a decade and more of building these other interests and my relationships and what am I good at or what do I enjoy besides sports. And so if you're not fueled by winning an Olympic medal or losing, where do you find your your sense of identity? Is it in your family, in your friends? And where does it come from? I think it's a bit different for every single person. And, and I think part of our our responsibility as humans in this self-discovery path that we're on is to to find the answer to your question for, for ourselves. There is a quote that that I love. It's it's never allow the good days to go to your head and never allow the bad days to go to your heart. And I and I think there's wisdom in, in that quote because just like you know, you're going to you know fail, you're also going to win. And winning doesn't is not a path of entitlement, right? And just because you're famous or you're winning or you're doing all these things does not put you above other people. And I think that that's a misnomer in, in our society or certainly the Western society as well of like, you know, lionizing and idolizing, you know, people to, to, to such a degree that are wealthy or are, are successful. And you know, in, in my own journey of self-discovery, which I'm still very much on, and I'm a student of the topic, certainly not a master of it, I think I've landed on that, that the intrinsic motivation sources are, for me, a much healthier source. And that's literally, you know, going to bed every night and saying, did I learn something new today? It, literally, did I learn something new? Did I go through an experience that challenged me that I found something out about myself or about somebody else? And I think the second part of that question is, did I make someone else's life a little bit better today? Did I give them some some feedback or advice that might be helpful for them in their life? Or did I hold the door for, I mean, list little things like that. And, and I don't know, the more I think about those things and the more I invest energy in there, the more important they become. And I think in addition to that, getting away from the news cycle that, that we're all on, the social media news cycle where 350 million Americans have a microphone on Twitter, can say whatever they want. I mean, right? Like that's not things that we should be tapping into and, and getting our energy from, or maybe, you know, um, on a consistent basis. So, but I, I do think it, it, it is 
uh, an individual journey for everyone. I don't think that there's one uh, template or one mold that works for everyone. I wanted to ask you about two quotes that really struck home for me personally and are helping me to have a dialogue to get on a more authentic, true path. And I'm sure you'll have an opinion on them, as you always do with everything. The first one is, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. (laughs) And the second one I recently heard was that I was so busy climbing the ladder of success that I didn't realize it was up against the wrong wall. (laughs) And I think these are just really beautiful sentiments because I think sometimes we're so focused on winning or succeeding that we're not really applying our energy to the right thing, to the right path. We just want a pat on the back. We want the world to tell us we're successful. And so we're looking for some formula to follow. And we're not really tapping in and listening to our own authentic selves and what really inspires us. Because what if the world doesn't approve? What if we don't succeed at it? What if there's not a path? I've found these two quotes have been great to spur a lot of thinking personally. And I'm wondering if if they bring anything up for you. Yeah, I I think both of them are are really good. I think they're the type of quotes that you can really sit with for a couple of days and probably find a lot of different meanings to them, right? And I think the 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 one about I'd rather fail at being a writer than be a successful lawyer. I mean, that what what that speaks to me is like the idea of sharing ideas and expanding people's points of view instead of proving other people wrong. You know, and and I and I think yeah, there there is you know we're we're kind of born into a world where you know being right is a nice thing, and <laughs> anyone that's been in a relationship knows that uh, you have a question to ask yourself: Would you rather be happy or right? And happy wife, often, happy life, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're married now, so is that yeah. <laughs> something you're learning? <laughs> Probably far too often we all kind of lean too much in the direction of well, I want to be right instead of being happy. Um, and then the other, the other quote about, um, climbing the corporate ladder and just realizing it was, it was the wrong ladder. I, that, that one to me says, I I call it what, what I call it is, is kind of treadmill goal setting where in front of you, there's this unbelievable thing that if you just accomplish your life will be complete. And that's happened to me a lot when I was young, it was like, if I could just make the US ski team, my life would be complete. Like literally that's all I want, please, you know, whatever I would pray to or, put energy into it. Just that, give me that one thing and um, my life will be complete. And then you get there. And of course you're not complete and it's nice for a moment, but then that, that goal kind of expands into something else. And, you know, I think taking a step off the ladder or off the treadmill and realizing that, you know, to, to, to your earlier point of like enjoying the journey, that the end result is not why you're walking the path. You're walking the path because every step is a new learning experience and, and, and something to appreciate or, or grow from. But no matter what our goals are, literally, no matter how big they are, once we get there, they won't be enough. If I would have won a gold medal in, in Torino, that would not have been enough. And I know that because a lot of my friends are Olympic gold medalists who have won one, two, three, five Olympic gold medal. And it's never enough, right? And, and so, yeah, um, just appreciating the journey a little bit more. I found that something very confusing as well because I very much thought in Salt Lake City and in Torino, 
if I had only won that gold medal, if I'd only skated my best, then I would feel complete. I would feel as if I was enough that I didn't disappoint my friends and family and fans. And then I had conversations with people like Michael Phelps or Sean White. These are some of the most decorated U.S. athletes of all time. And yet, as soon as it's gone, the feeling of emptiness comes back. And that that platform on which they prove themselves is gone. And then there's the next champion. And it's only as good as long as it lasts. But as soon as the process is gone and the competition is gone, it's the question of who am I and what's my worth outside of getting gold medals really comes in and, and kind of hits them like a bag of bricks. And so that's certainly something that that I've been sitting with and I think has helped me to move past missing my Olympic moments. Again, like you, I'm a constant student and trying to learn and understand events in the past to, to be better and happier as I move forward. And that certainly involves a lot of reading. And I believe I've also read The Power of Intention. I wanted to ask you, what has been the most impactful influence on your life? It could be a book, it could be a person, it could be a certain event. Something that was a breakthrough moment that gave you a fundamentally different view and lens on life than before you read it, kind of this aha moment. And I know you mentioned uh, Wayne Dyer, you know, with the power of intention, but was there was there something else? And, you know, it could be it could be anything in sports, in personal life, in your charity, in your tech company. There, there, there's been so many, right? And it's like what Steve Jobs told the graduating class in 2005 at Stanford, that you can only connect the dots of life when you're looking backwards, right? And so moments happen, introductions happen, people come in and out of your life, and you don't always know why, but upon reflection, you can always connect those dots. And to your question, there are so many people. It would be impossible to recall all the people who, certainly on this podcast, that, that um, influenced my life in a, in a positive way. Um, the book, The Power of Intention, certainly had a powerful impact on me, but, but that was when I was 21. I'm 37 now, right? And so my perspective's different. And I can't say if I read that book again, I, I would be impacted by it like I was at 21. Uh, I recently read a book called the, the Saint, the Surfer, and the CEO, and it's a fictional tale of, of um, a guy who's on a path of self-discovery that spends time with three very different people, a saint in Italy, a surfer in Hawaii, and a, and a CEO. And it, I was kind of going into the book with eyes wide open. And I think what it helped show me is like the balance of life, right? And, you know, currently I'm a CEO of a close to a 300-person tech company that I started in 2010. And you know, there's uh, a good deal of pressure of of running a company of that size and globally scaling and doing the things that that, that we're doing. And I often sometimes forget about the the emotional side of life. Um, being a CEO is is one is it can be a lonely path. You you have to make decisions that that best serve the, the company, which sometimes put um, you know uh, your 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 own beliefs in in conflict. And, and that book was a beautiful read to me, and it certainly impacted my life and encouraged me to, to take time away from work to focus on some other things. And then, of course, there's, you know, there's great business books. I would call it the business Bible, literally like the best business book I've ever read. And I think most people believe it's 
it's either number one or certainly in the top five. Uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins um, is just such a fantastic read. And so, yeah, I, you know, I try to read or listen to books as much as I can because I, I think as human beings, we're often uh, on this planet thinking that our problems are unique to us, but they're not. You know, folks have solved all the problems that we encounter um, many times over. And fortunately and thankfully, a lot of them have written about it. So it's fun to fun to learn through their experiences. And I want to move to two or three last questions to wrap up. And one of them, which may not make a lot of sense to you, but it's an, a consistent thread throughout the podcast, is what is your Olympic moment in life? We certainly know what they were at the Olympics, but is there anything else in your life that had that kind of intensity and grandeur? Yeah, I mean, I guess it would, de- it would depend a little bit how I'm thinking or defining Olympics. But it's, if I were to define Lim- Olympics as kind of like special or what are the most special experiences in my life, um, I, I would center most of them around Wish of a Lifetime, which is a charity I started in 2008. Um, to grant wishes to 80, 90, and 100 year old people, and you know today we're we're granting over one wish per day, and <clears throat> we just, I mean, to play such a small role in helping a senior citizen realize like a lifelong dream is is a feeling I could never describe, um, but it gives me a great sense of of um, of purpose and gratitude when when that happens. So I, I guess that would be my Olympic moments when you reconnect three centarian sisters where the youngest is 104 and the oldest is 113 who haven't seen each other in 15 years and watch that moment take place. Um, Those would be some of my Olympic moments now. And a follow-up on that, I know we've talked a lot about how much you love your grandparents and how much they meant to you and the impact they had on your life and then traveling through Asia and seeing the respect in which elders are treated and that we have a society of young, younger, all attention is on youth. I think it's a beautiful thing to to respect and honor the wisdom and the tradition of our elders. And I wanted to know what specifically was it that that made you start this as your charity? And what was the favorite wish that you've ever granted? Yeah, I mean, my, my grandfather was my first ski instructor when I was three. And you know, just amazing human being. Flew 19 missions over Berlin in World War II, and um, just such a driving force in, in in my life. And I shared such an amazing bond with with him. And my grandmother on the other side lived with us for the first 19 years of our lives downstairs. And so my grandparents were a very connected part of my upbringing, and two of my biggest heroes. And you know, the more I would travel throughout Asia and in through Scandinavia and watch how folks treat the the eldest in their cultures with this sense of reverence and respect and kindness and compassion, the more I recognized uh, how different it was here. And, and that was really the founding belief of Wish of a Lifetime is not only to grant wishes, but but to remind our culture and our society how important these, these people are. Um, not only to our societies, but to our lives. And think of the contributions that that they made. They paved our roads. They fought bravely on the beaches of of Normandy and the boats of Pearl Harbor for our freedom. I mean, yeah. And and so um, that's why I started Wish of a Lifetime, kind of in in, in honor and memory of my my grandparents. Um, my 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 favorite wish 
that is so hard. We've, we've granted, you know, thousands, but thousands. Um, one of my favorite wishes was, is Tom's wish. He, he lived in Alabama. He was in hospice. He was given one month to live. And he had a condition that um, made it impossible for him to travel. And he had this dream of travel his whole life. Like he always wanted to go to a different state or potentially a different country. And, you know, his life didn't play out the way that he was able to do that. So he wrote into Wish of a Lifetime and, and said, my wish of a lifetime is to get a postcard from somebody in a different state than Alabama. And maybe they can write what it's like in their state and their city. And I could kind of live through their, their experiences. And we posted his wish on some of our social channels. And all of a sudden, it just went viral. People were, it, went, it was on the news. It was, and, and before we knew it, Sasha, Tom had thousands. Like I went to visit him two months later and he, and he, you know, he had postcards that could have filled up his whole house from all over the world. Countries all, and it wasn't just postcards. It was people who wrote stories on the back of this postcard and sent them to Tom. And he was so happy. He ended up living two and a half years when he was given two months to live. And he was the light that he had inside of him through this kind of, you know, random act of kindness of people all over the world who were showing Tom love was a beautiful thing. And certainly, you know, one of the more inspiring wishes that I saw happen. That is such a touching, incredible story. Wow. I just, this conversation with you, everything you've done is incredibly inspiring. Every time I talk to you, I feel like I get more and more gems of wisdom and see more into the soul of who you are outside of this tough guy athlete that I that I first met in, in 2001 or 2002. Thank you so much for coming on and hopefully we'll do a round two someday. Sounds good. Thanks. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.